It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is Dave Powers, president and CEO of Decker's Brands, a global footwear and apparel company based in Santa Barbara, California. Since 2012, Dave has served in various roles, including spearheading growth initiatives for the company's brand portfolio as president of brands and leading direct-to-consumer strategies as president of direct-to-consumer. Under his leadership as president and CEO since 2016, Decker's Brands has received accolades for stellar financial performance and sustainability efforts. In 2020, Dave was named a 2020 Business Person of the Year by Fortune magazine, ranking number 13 on their list of top executives. Prior to joining Deckers, Dave held executive leadership roles at Converse, Reebok, and Timberland. He's a native of New Hampshire, graduated cum laude from Northeastern University with a bachelor's degree in marketing, and he enjoys spending time outdoors with his wife and two sons. Dave Powers, welcome into the corner office. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Ah, great to have you here. And I'm down in sunny La Jolla, California. I think you're in the, somewhere in the Santa Barbara area, and we've been blessed with good weather. And I think we're about the only place in the country to have it. So we're gloating a bit, aren't we? Yeah, you know, we're, we're pretty fortunate, I have to say. Um, but we choose to live I was here, talking so. to the client back east. They go, Brent, there's two feet of snow outside. Let's not talk about the weather. And I said, yeah. absolutely not. <laughs> well, you know, first and foremost, gosh, with the pandemic now going into its second year, how are you doing? How's you and your family? And, and how has Deckers fared through these very interesting and, and somewhat challenging times this past year? Yeah, I appreciate you asking that. You know, I'm good. You know, I'm, I'm um, staying focused. Uh, diving into the business and keeping the teams motivated and you're really focused on making sure that our employees are staying healthy and both physically and mentally along with their families. Um, And then doing the same on my end, just trying to manage, you know, like everybody's doing work home, working from home, managing the family at the same time. Um, Certainly I'm in a little bit different situation living in Santa Barbara with the weather. Uh, But I'm, you know, conscious of the fact that we have employees all over the world and everybody has their own situation and we're trying to get through the best we can. So it's been tough, but we're we're hanging in there. And fortunately, the business has been helpful. Yeah, great. Have you had to close down any facilities or anything like that other than the office? Have you guys been hit pretty hard from a consumer standpoint or are you kind of holding your own? I mean, people are doing a lot more exercise, right? So at least that part of the business and (laughs) out and about. You know, we can talk a little bit if you want about uh, how the business is trending, um, but our brands, both UGG and Hoka, and also Tevin, Sinook, and Kulabora, are, are faring pretty well in all of this. They're uh, being still in high demand, and 
you know, we're still working from home. It's been coming up on a year now in a couple of weeks, and uh, we're going to be working from home for a while still, at least here. Right. Our team in China is back to the office, uh, but it's varying degrees around the globe. Well, that's good to hear. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. Well, listen, we always start the podcast just learning a little bit about the CEOs in their early years. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what your early family life was like, Dave. Yeah, so I grew up in the seacoast of New Hampshire. Um, mm. I used to be ashamed to say I was from New Hampshire. I always referred to Boston instead because a lot of people didn't know where New Hampshire was when I moved out <laughs> to the West Coast a long time ago. Um, but yeah, small town. It was a, actually a mill town that used to be uh, used to have footwear manufacturing uh, back oh. in the day, believe it or not. And right. um, so, yeah, small family. I have three siblings, uh, two sisters and a brother and parents. Um, you know, and so we, we grew up in that town. My father was an educator. He was a superintendent oh, of schools. Okay. So wow. visible in the community, engaged in the community, and yeah. um, you know, really committed to kids uh, and education and uh, blessed to have a great upbringing with my family. And we're still yeah. very close. Did your mom uh, work in the home or did she have a professional career outside? She uh, was a dental assistant, you know, part time. Okay. So she tried to balance yeah. that and have her own personal aspirations along with raising four kids. So I appreciate how tough that can be for people to do. Yeah. Manage. Yeah. I grew up with an educator. My dad was a, a, a elementary school teacher and then a principal for many years. They tried to get him to superintendent. He never really wanted to go. He always wanted to stay close. But yeah. education was a very important part of growing up for myself and my two siblings. Was that the same with you? Was it always kind of assumed you'd go to college and getting good grades was like getting a paycheck? You know, my my father was actually pretty low key about it. He, um, yeah. you know, we always talked about going to college and that was an expectation. And you know, we all did, right. fortunately. Um, but he wasn't on us about grades. He, you know, he had a very hands-off approach, kind of loose, tight approach mm. to, to managing and for us. And, you know, he was there to support us, but he never gave us any special treatment. He said, listen, you're on your own. I don't have, you can't pull any favors <laughs> on me because I'm the superintendent. So it's up to you to right. chart your own path. Yeah. Cool. What were the kinds of things that you remember growing up? Was there any, you know, parental inspirations that either mom or dad gave you at an early age that kind of stuck with you through your career? Um, well, the value of athletics was a big one. Uh, mm. my dad, you know, he was a coach, uh, throughout his career as well as an educator. And, you know, my sister was a track star. My older brother was a football star in, in high school. And, you know, that's embedded in me. We were a very active family and running. And I, I still refer back to that, you know, even today, I still say very active. Um, and then, you know, the value of, of getting outside, we spent a lot of time at the beach, yeah. any chance we could in the summer. Um, you know, you're living in New Hampshire, so, you know, you're always trying to get out and, uh, you know, we grew up in a small town it was a bit of a rural town too. So a lot of times just out in the woods, exploring with friends, yeah. you know, getting into trouble. Um, and, uh, <laughs> but mostly just always outside. That's the, the biggest thing that. What were the sports you enjoyed the most, Dave? Uh, you know, I played, uh, ice hockey growing up and right. up until about eighth grade then i played everything i mean i i played baseball basketball football soccer um track indoor track in the winter i was just constantly trying everything out but my 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 best sport was soccer so um yeah I had some scholarship opportunities come out of high school because of that but, that's cool yeah, yeah yeah good good student as well did, did you find certain certain areas that you enjoyed more than others growing up in high school junior high uh good enough Good enough. I, <laughs> I mastered the skill of doing enough just to get by with, you know, B, B plus. <laughs> um, and, 
you know, same for college. I mean, I, I really leaned in in college, but high school, right. I was, you know, I had a lot going on with with uh, sports and everything else, but yeah. good enough to get in into a good school. Were there entrepreneurial things you're involved with as a kid? You know, did you have the uh, ubiquitous paper route or, you know, do other things that raise some spending money when you're growing up? Yeah, all kinds of odd jobs. Uh, my first <laughs> job actually was uh, cleaning my father's office. I was a janitor for the, uh, for ah. the school district. And, you know, I spent my first days cleaning toilets, cleaning offices, vacuuming, and those kinds of things. But, <laughs> that leads to good humility, right, Dave? Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm sure everybody has war stories about work. And, you know, I, I did some construction for a while. But I think the real work ethic that was instilled in me was, uh, you know, junior, senior, I actually worked at McDonald's. And, oh, um, cool. yeah, yeah. And it, you know, that was a great, just kind of training program about customer service and responsibility and accountability and, and, uh, you know, the value of, of a paycheck and working hard for it. Right. Right. Now you went on to Northeastern. Uh, did you choose that school for a specific reason? I know it's in the area, obviously where you were living, but, uh, did you, uh, you said something about a scholarship. Did you, did you have a, a scholarship in college? I had opportunities for other schools, but not yeah. there. Um, okay. so that was actually my first choice. And and the reason was twofold. One is, um, I really wanted to go to school in Boston and right. that was, you know, down the road, it was about an hour and a half from where I lived. And I was actually in high school, very involved in the Boston music scene and, cool. you know, the local music scene and really wanted to live in a, in a city, but also really, uh, enjoyed what Northeastern had to offer as far as, uh, the co-op program and the work study program. Right. And right. um, that turned out to just be an amazing experience. It's a five-year program, and you go to school for six months, and then you work wow. in your field for six months, on and off. Um, and, uh, you know, you really just have to make it on your own. You know, you're living in the city. You have to find your own place to live. You have to buy your own food. Right. And right. you're constantly moving around between jobs and school. So it's, it's an incredible uh, foundation to build off of. Yeah. What was that first job you took out of college? The first job I took out of college, I, well, I did, I, first thing I did was take off and move out to Vail, Colorado for a ski season. Nice. Uh, yes. <laughs> nice. Never you have the gap off. year as they call it now, right? Yeah. I had the little gap year. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> but it's interesting. That was, I came back after that was the winter of 90, well, the fall of 92, winter of 93, uh, oh, sorry, eh, sorry about that. 89. Um, but anyway, I, I came back and started trying to look for uh, jobs in the advertising and marketing field. And I ended up, my first real job, official job, was working for Valpac, selling yeah. uh, direct mail advertising, Wow! Um, which I am horrible at. I, I am a horrible <laughs> salesman. Um, but, it, you know, it's interesting because it, I, I did it for the paycheck. But at the same time, I, I really found... Um, the sense of creative energy within myself. And I started designing uh, clothing uh, outside on my wow. spare time during after work. And at night, I remember sitting up at till one o'clock in the morning, just designing t-shirts on a computer um, wow. and ultimately turned that into a little apparel brand that I, I sold at various stores in Boston and cool. in uh, San Francisco. And that's where I really found my passion. I obviously didn't make any money. Yeah. But um, I realized that I love, you know, what I learned at Northeastern in business, but I also love the creative uh, side yeah. of work as well. Yeah. And, you know, you've you've been in the branded shoe business for a long time. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about from, you know, Timberland to Converse to, to Deckers. But I, I understand you started in retail, right? You were with Gap for a while. How, how did that go? And how did you like the retail side of the business? 
Yeah, it's interesting. Um, So it was 93 that I actually packed up everything I owned in my car and I just drove out to San Francisco with the hope of either getting a job at uh, Levi's or The Gap. Uh, Those are the big companies out there at that time. And I had learned a lot of uh, graphic design work and marketing work. And so I went out there and interviewed and uh, I did some temp work for Levi's for a while. And then when I interviewed Mm. for The Gap, they said, um, well, listen, we don't really have a marketing department, a traditional marketing department. What you should probably do is, is work in the stores. Um, and my initial reaction was, well, I didn't go to school for five years to come out and work at a gap store. You know, <laughs> I was quickly humbled and, uh, you know, ultimately got offered a job, uh, to work as an assistant manager in one of the small stores in San Francisco. And it was a life changer for me. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I was making, I think it was like $15,000 a year. I was working two other jobs in my days off at night and as well. And, um, but within nine months I had, you know, made enough connections and, uh, unfortunately I guess impressed enough people to get offered an opportunity in merchandising at the headquarters. Yeah. Um, and that kind of kicked it all off. And from there, you know, I, I, the value of working in a store instills the importance of customer service you know, and merchandising and understanding the P&L and all of it. It's an incredible experience. And so that foundation was invaluable for me. Yeah. Did, did you get people manager responsibilities pretty early on at Gap or yeah. you know, they, they, they tend to throw them at you pretty quickly there? They do. They do. They, you know, they yeah. give you a lot of trust. And that's one of the things people don't realize about uh, stores. You're, you know, if you're running a store, if you're a store manager, you're basically a, you know, a, a business owner. I mean, you own the that's right. and uh, you Absolutely. have to hire and fire and train and develop and, so Gap at that time was best in class in developing retail talent. And um, yeah, I learned I learned a great deal there and through my career at, at uh, Gap over the 10 years that I was there on just leading and yeah. managing people. And so you left there and in a merchandising role, from what I understand, and then and then went on to Timberland. Was that your next job? So you, you, you did the cross-country thing again. Yeah. So um, <laughs> I met my wife at the Gap. She was in the field. Right. She ran their flagship in San Francisco. And uh, so we were... We got married and then, you know, at the end of about eight years in, I realized that I was ready for a change and the business was really struggling. And, um, and, uh, you know, and we had our first child and my wife, you know, uh, stopped working and we decided that we wanted to continue to live in some place where she didn't necessarily have to work. She could focus on raising right. the family. Um, and then I got an opportunity at Timberland, which is moving back to New Hampshire, actually, yeah, close to my, right. my core family. So we took that opportunity um, to run all merchandising uh, for the DDC channel for them in retail. And did, you know, various roles. I worked there for the uh, DTC team for a little bit. I spent two years working on the product side and merchandising strategy with the global teams. Right. And then... Uh, they asked me to go over to Europe and run the retail business um, over there, and so I. Spent oh, fantastic! Where, where are you based in Europe, Dave? Uh, we were based in London. And, oh, uh, nice. Yeah, mm-hmm. so our European headquarters at the time for Timberland was based there, and just you know, obviously an incredible opportunity and experience um, on all levels. Uh, just different place to live, managing different business models. Obviously, European yeah. business. I had some experience in that uh, through Gap, but there's nothing like living in the market. And getting to right. know the consumer, you know, firsthand. All right. Now, Timberland's got some retail operations, or they did at that time. Is that correct? Did you eventually work your way into that part of the business? Yeah. So that's what I was running over there is our owned retail yeah. and then also merchandising for our, for our global fleet, including franchise stores and online. Right. 
Yeah. Right. Great opportunity. Any kids born over there that uh, would have opportunities to expand their uh, citizenship rights? <laughs> no, unfortunately, they're both born before that. I have two boys who are now 16 yeah. and 19, uh, 17 and yeah. 19. Yeah. Um, but no, they, but they, you know, we had a, a great time. It's a great place to, to raise kids in the city of London. It's very kid friendly. Yeah. Awesome. How many years were you there? Uh, three years. Three years. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And then did you come back with Timberland to the States or is that the time you transition transitioned to, to Converse? Yeah, it's, that's when I transitioned to Converse. They yeah. asked me to stay in the UK and, and localize and run the apparel business over there. But um, hmm. I just felt like I needed a change. There was a lot going on at upper management. And, uh, you know, I've been pretty good at like protecting my myself and my career along the way and, and being able to read the signs as to when things are heading, you know, in not such a great direction. So I decided to purposely make a change and the opportunity for Converse came up. And again, I was able to move back to just north of Boston and uh, yeah. have an incredible opportunity with working not only for Converse at a time where it was high growth, but also being part of the Nike leadership team. So it was a bit of a no brainer for me to take yeah, that opportunity. Cool. When you look back at those two or three years that you were in London, what, what would you say is kind of the biggest difference in terms of leadership and managing and developing people internationally versus doing it here in the U.S.? You know, it's a good question. The, the roles are, are not always the same. So the titles are mm. the same, but the roles are can be different over there. And, right. um, you know, it's just it's the, the, the people are different. You have to adapt your style. You know, they're not sure. as communicative communicative as as uh, or forthright with their feelings or what they really think <laughs> right right yeah, so you have to really spend time to get to know them understand okay where you're really coming from on things and make sure you're communicating clearly um yeah. but you really have to gain their respect you know you're an outsider and yeah, you really need right. to show that you're there to to you, know, you have their uh, best interest in mind and you're there to help and support and really be a, a good listener and learner along as along with managing yeah cool so back to the States, Converse is, uh, where, where were you based with them? Were you, were you still East Coast then at that time or where, where were they based? They were based just North of Boston. So that's Boston. That's what I thought. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Cause you've got Re Reebok. Was Reebok also Boston? I knew Balance was Boston, I think as well. There's a lot, a lot of shoe companies out of Boston. There's a lot. Yeah. Timberland, Converse, <laughs> Timberland, yeah. Reebok, New Balance, Rockport, Puma. Yeah. Rockport. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're all, there's a lot there. I mean, it all goes back to the history of, you know, manufacturing in the Northeast. That's right. Yeah. So, so back to the Northeast and then again, kind of a combination of retail and merchandising responsibilities there. What, 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 what were your roles there at Converse? Yeah, at that time, we only had some outlet stores. And right. um, so the goal was develop a retail business um, and obviously the online business as well, uh, globally. Um, I found out really like three months or three weeks after I joined that we actually had 2,500 stores in China that oh had gosh. under the Converse wow. banner that were run by partners. So, um, it was, it was really creating developing a global strategy for Converse retail, mm. uh, both yeah. for owned and partner stores, full price and off price, and then making sure that, um, getting the support of Nike leadership team to invest in it. So, you know, were they owned by Nike already at the time that you joined? Yeah. Yeah. They had been. Okay. Yep. They had been purchased. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's a big leap. You know, um, retail is, is, is hard work. It's a lot of heavy lifting. It's a lot of capital sure. investment. Um, it's, a big, it's a big risk for a brand. Right. Right. Um, right. But we got it off the ground. We had some great store launches and um, 
you know, really helped, I think, dimensionalize the Converse brand over time. Yeah. Awesome. And then after four years, back to the West Coast again. So <laughs> how did that come about? And just for our listeners, uh, Dave's been close to nine years, I guess, with uh, with Decker's eight and a half, somewhere in that range. And you kind of came out and, and you've had three or four roles since you were there. But, you know, what was the attraction? What, what, what was kind of the motivation to say, OK, well, let's pack it up and do it again? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. It was it was avoiding one challenge and then jumping on another. So mm. what what was happening at the time is, um, you know, the team at Nike, my, my boss at Nike at the time, wanted me to move to Portland and join the Nike organization, mm. leave yeah. Converse and go to Nike. Um, and they were very, you know, generous with opportunities for me, you know, running big businesses. And but right. I, what I've always found is I like smaller, more, you know. Mm. Um, smaller businesses where you can really have a bigger impact more intimate yeah more intimate yeah. that's the word yes more yeah. intimate yeah. um and you know nike is, is an incredible organization but it's just it's massive Huge. It's complex yeah. there's a lot of yeah. layers and i really wanted to you know and also i really thrive on complexity and the international multi multi-channel business and i didn't want to lose that um right and I also, to be honest, struggled with moving to Portland in the weather. So that was a secondary. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a, I'm an Oregon duck grad. I know exactly you what you mean. It was a great place to study, but I don't think I'd ever want to live there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and then the opportunity. So I knew at some point it was going to run its course. And, um, yeah. but the opportunity at Decker's came across, uh, yeah. my email and, um, now, on, was on hell a CEO at the time. He was, yeah. had he. Yeah, he was. Uh, yeah. So were you recruited? Uh, did you know him? Because he was at Rockport, I think, wasn't he? Yeah, I didn't and, know uh, Angel. I mean, no. um, I got to know him, obviously, pretty quick. And right, he right. was a major factor <laughs> in my decision to go there. But it, it's sure. interesting because I had always said to my wife, my dream dub someday would be to work at Patagonia and live in Santa Barbara. There you go. All right. And, oh. and so I think I exceeded that dream by landing at Decker's instead. Still love Patagonia. Still a huge fan of that brand. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, about 15 miles away. <laughs> yeah. But uh, still much. in Santa Barbara. Yeah. Yeah. And were you recruited over there? Was it, what is the search they were looking for? Or was it through a connection that you made the, uh, the transition to, to Decker's? Yeah, they had a, uh, an executive search uh, firm yeah. reach out. Right. Yep. Yeah. And, um, right, cool. I initially turned it down and I said, nah, it's, you know, I'm not quite sure I'm ready to do this yet. And they were persistent. Right. I'm glad they were. Um, <laughs> Fantastic. Great. And yeah, as I said, you've been there, uh, cl close to nine years and have, of course now, uh, running the show and, you know, kind of came up through the ranks and, you know, just give us a kind of a brief overview. So you kind of started and was it their retail business? Cause they've, they've had some, or I guess they still do, or you still do. Right. Or I, I, I seem to recall that that got, um, uh, was that scaled back a little bit or was that something that I'm thinking up in my head with regards to Decker's retail operations? I, I remember there used to be more stores than there per currently is, but I may have that wrong. No, you got it right. You absolutely have it right. Um, yeah. When I joined, I think there was probably 15 stores um, wow. and they were, you know, the, the metrics on them were off the charts. I'd never seen profitability numbers like that from a four wall uh, business. Wow. Yeah. Uh, both in the U.S. We had a couple stores in London and then a couple in Beige uh, Beijing. Wow. And we had a really lean team that was managing them, but the, the company was still a wholesale led model. And right. what I appreciated right. about Angel and his vision is that he knew that DDC is where things were heading. We had to get closer to the consumer. You had to build stores and, and websites globally to create 
a bigger sense of what the brand is and could be. So, uh, and I love that stuff. I love creating, you know, experiences for consumer. I love merchandising and just that magical moment of people walking into the store and seeing the unexpected product uh, or storytelling. So my job is really kind of build out a, the, the business, but also the capabilities and the team hired a lot of people globally set up, Mm. you know, process and structure to be able to, to really fuel uh, a DDC business globally. And we expanded quite a bit. Um, but in 2015, 16, that's when, you know, brick and mortar started really getting hit. And, yeah. um, you know, we, we ended up going through a transformation of the business where I became CEO. We had to slow the growth and, and uh, reallocate refund uh, resources. But um, we still have a really healthy um, brick and mortar business globally. Yeah. We have uh, partner stores in China and in Europe. And, um, you know, now looking to take that, uh, expertise and apply it to the Hoka brand at some point. Yeah. Awesome. How many employees today? And, and what, what are your, uh, global sales? Uh, global sales that we ended, uh, last year were just over 2.1 billion. Um, wow. and, uh, it's driven by a combination of UG returning to growth and, you know, the, uh, just the exponential growth that we're seeing from Hoka that, that brand's going to pass $500 million this year. Nice. Um, already so you know we're fortunate to have two healthy horses in the race that are leading and driving revenue growth and uh we're having a you know another record year this year can't give away the details yet but um you know happy with the results and continuing to grow that's great and and is most of it through organic have you guys continued with acquisitions over the years i i I believe the ug brand was an acquisition wasn't it not originally in australia Yep. Is that where that came from? Yeah. Yeah. The team that was running Deckers at the time, Teva was the bigger brand at the time. Teva, and, right. and then they acquired UGG and then a couple years into it with Oprah Winfrey and a couple other things going their way, uh, the business just skyrocketed and it's never stopped. Yeah, um, fantastic. We had some fantastic. smaller brands over the years, but we ended up uh, folding you know, most of those and just focusing on Teva, Sinook, and Hoka in the last four years. Yeah. Fantastic. So you've been president and CEO since 16. So you're going to about four going on five years there. Tell us a little bit about kind of how your leadership styles evolved, particularly from the early days of, you know, some of the uh, work you had at Gap and managing people to, to kind of how you manage today. Yeah, my, my management style is, is stayed pretty consistent. I've always, mm-hmm. you know, had the, the philosophy of spend your time hiring the right talent, yeah. align with them, you know, and assume they know what they're doing, right? You have to start at a place of I'm bringing you in because, you know, you've got the expertise and you put some points on the board at some point. Um, align on the strategy and the game plan and then empower them to get it done. And so mm-hmm. I stay close as necessary. Um, I'll sometimes dive in to help support or understand uh, the business a little bit better or, you know, try to, uh, you know, fix things where necessary. Um, but generally I stay closely in touch with my team, uh, on a regular basis and just kind of, I'm there on the sidelines supporting versus micromanaging, uh, a lot. Um, so I try to do that as much as I can. I still, for me to be successful and feel confident, I need to have a a true understanding of what's happening in the business, um, Mm. at a relatively deep level. So I do stay engaged, but I, I do my best not to micromanage or, or, you know, uh, make decisions for people just more to kind of educate and, and help support them. Tell, tell us about that, Dave. How do you do that? I mean, you've got a global organization. You've got, of course, your executive team in Santa Barbara, maybe a few different people elsewhere, manufacturing overseas. How do you stay close to it without, you know, as you said, appearing to be micromanaging? 
Yeah, my my approach is is really be open and honest and transparent and approachable. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, I'm not a top down kind of command and control type manager. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I value my team. I trust my team. Um, I listen to the team. Uh, I let them challenge me. You know, I, I have no problem with that. Um, I won't always listen, but uh, you know, feel free to <laughs> or agree with what you have to say. I should say, but um, you know, I'm, I'm all I'm all ears. And I do my best to stay connected, you know, international yeah. travel, still visiting stores. Um, even over the last year, I'm, I'm constantly texting with employees from around the globe, you know, and just on a personal level or just quickly answering questions or, um, but I know the business, I know it really well. I know the team. Mm. Um, I know I'm on a personal level as best I can. Um, and I think you just have to be, you know, visible, approachable and trustworthy. And I think that, yeah. you know, I, I think that, with good intentions, the business and the team does the rest. Sometimes it's also good to know the right questions to ask, right? And uh, being able to to kind of deep dive in things. You know, one of the big differences that I've seen in, in executive recruiting is in, you know, 20th century, you know, pretty much, you know, the bosses were the king. I grew up in an organization, Procter & Gamble, and, you know, it was hired from within. You never worked for a guy that wasn't, you know, had your job before. And, you know, you very rarely questioned what they said. And yet with millennials, and I think in the 21st century, we're, what, 20 years into it now, you know, I think CEOs are much more in a situation where, you know, sometimes they can be a little uncomfortable having their answers questioned <laughs> rather than just their questions answered. How, how do you deal with that? And, you know, is it is your culture one where there's a lot more collaboration and people are comfortable and, you know, uh, challenging perhaps their senior managers? Or, you know, is it is it the style maybe a little bit differently in, in terms of uh, how that's approached at Deckers? Well, you, you bring up a really good point. And I think that leadership styles uh, need to evolve um, yeah. from where, you know, when I grew up in my early days at The Gap, it was very much, you know, <laughs> here, we're going to tell you what to do and your job Top is to execute, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and I, and I still think I had PTSD from those days. It was hard. It was, <laughs> <laughs> I, I know, think we all do, Dave. We, yeah. We've got the lashes on the back to prove it, right? Exactly. Uh. And I, and I, and then, you know, there's also kind of a, a cutthroat culture that goes along with yeah, that. And I, right. and I saw a lot of backstabbing that mm. just, I did not enjoy, um, and found it hard to trust people. And so it, literally I have been chasing the opposite of that my whole career. And right. so what I tried to do at Decker's, and the reason I came to Decker's is largely due to Angel's philosophy as well, but I've really tried to make a, an, a, create an environment where people feel comfortable being themselves mm. and that they do feel trusted and they do feel heard and they feel far, part of the team. Um, and one of the things you know we say at Decker's is you shouldn't have to change who you are when you come to the door every day. Right. Uh, we want you to be right. comfortable in your own skin. We want you to be valued mm. for who you are and and uh, bring your experiences to the table. And I believe that's when you get the best work out of people. Um, yeah. And so, you know, we're, we're on that journey. We're not perfect, um, certainly, but that's the aspiration. Um, and, and with that, you have to be vulnerable yourself. You have to be open to listen to your employees, to, to value what they have to say. Um, like I said, you may not always agree, but right. people just want to be heard, you know. That's Good, right. Or, yeah. Or, yeah. or indifferent. They want to know that they're their value. And um, we're doing our best to make sure that that's the case at Decker's. And I truly believe that that allows uh, people to do their best work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, Decker's has been around a long time. 
Uh, as you know, I lived in Santa Barbara for about 25, 30 years. I've been in and out of there. And, and you know, it was founded, I think, back in the 70s, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, I think I know we're that, 37 uh, years now, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Pat, Pat Lopker, rest his, rest his soul, uh, was, was one of the founders. And, you know, I know that the company kind of just stayed at one level for a long time. And, and, you know, I think Angel and of course you and the team that he, he's built out really just kind of launched it. But I, I think there were what, maybe three, $400 million, I think in sales forever, it seemed. And then I remember, you know, hit the billion dollar mark and now the $2 billion mark, that's, that's incredible. What, what would you say has really just been kind of the key cultural change that's allowed that kind of, you know, explosive growth and, and the huge success you guys have had since that time? Because, you know, for those first 15, 20 years, it really didn't go very much, very far, right? It was pretty much steady state. No, you're right. And and what happened really around the 2006 time, 2016 time when I became CEO, you know, we were, we were driven, our success was really driven by Ugh at that time. And if Ugh, you know, had a good holiday season or a good year, then and we grew, then everything was good. If it didn't, right. the downside was really bad. Yeah, um, yeah. And so very reliant on the one brand. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah and and yeah. what we we were also relying on is really one item, which is the classic, you know, sheepskin boot. I mean that was right. about fifty percent of our total retail sales for oh. Ugh, which is probably forty percent of the total company. Yeah. And that boot was kind of flatlining and the other product around it wasn't resonating to the same extent. So mm. we were a little bit stuck. Um, and what we realized is we had to do, we had to go through a transformation to improve our profitability, to improve efficiencies, to reallocate resources, mm. um, you know, involved a lot of saying no to things mm. that people wanted to invest in. Oh. Um, and then, Fortunately, uh, we had acquired Hoka, and Hoka started to show some signs of meaningful growth. That allowed us to take a step back with UGG and really reset mm. the marketplace, reset the brand, clean up the inventory. Uh, and I give you know my leadership team all the credit in the world for the work that they've done over the last four or five years of of resetting our distribution, cleaning up the marketplace, um, and then creating you know, a more exciting, compelling, and innovative product offering, but also making sure that it's differentiated by account uh, and it's mm. segmented. And yeah. so, because you have to reset before you can, you can't keep, you know, continuing to try to stuff more of the same item into the channel if there's just no, <laughs> right. you know what I mean? Yeah, so we really yeah. have to pull back and reset the organization. And uh, we went through a, you know, a three-year turnaround Um and, uh, you know, what's happened now is is that work is paying off in spades and we're seeing mm. just the demand is outpacing uh, supply in some cases right now for both Ugg and Hoka uh, and Teva too. Fantastic. And, and um, when you say the reset, was it just, you know, looking a lot closer at the data and really understanding where the market was going or, you know, from an external standpoint, or was it more internal? How are we making this? And, and you know, the costs involved. Help us understand that a little bit. Yeah, it was really across the board, and and mm -hmm. as I said, you know, we brought in some some fantastic leaders um, who had experience at other companies, you know, running larger or more multi-channel complex organizations. Right. So we had to right. grow up a little bit uh, with capabilities. Yeah, but right. you know, looking at product and inventory sell through and net margin, where it was selling in the channel, how much was being closed mm. out, you know, really restraining that back on the supply side, 
you know, getting into the details of, you know, the cost of materials, the yields of how much product materials we're using in each boot, mm. um, shifting from China over to Vietnam. I think oh. they, you know, I think the uh, sourcing teams and the product teams created a 500 basis point improvement in just product margin. Whoa, that's amazing. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's a big number on, a, on that kind of big volume. Big number. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. Closing retail stores, you know, right. we unfortunately had to... Uh, do some headcount reduction a little bit. So it was a pretty yep. cross the board transformation of our business. Wow. And, uh, wow. But now we're, you know, we're healthier than ever. And we we feel like yeah. we're in a bit of a flywheel situation now with yeah. our ability to reinvest and drive demand. Because Fantastic. Of well, as you staff back up and, and look for people, obviously, that to play those roles, whether the executives who are else are, you know, wh- what do you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in and hire, Dave? Uh, well, the first two things I would say are probably equally important is, is experience, right? Capability, but culture fit. Um, and you know, we, we take our culture very seriously. Mm. Um, you know, on and I, can you define that for us? If you kind of put a sentence or two together, how would you define the Decker's culture? Yeah. Just everything I talked about before, just, you know, kind of, um, you know, honest, approachable, trustworthy, uh, confident, empowering, Yeah, collaborative. That's big for us. We're you know we're a matrix organization. We're collect. We're a complex business. So right. you have to be able to manage from afar, influence from afar, uh, work across the matrix, collaborate with your teammates to get things done. Sure. Um, you know, and, and then the command and control um, leadership style that we spoke about earlier. Yeah, that doesn't necessarily work at Deckers. You know, you that's have right. to be a team yeah. player, and um, right. and that's. So that we're really, really careful about hiring people that fit that uh, mm. model and that philosophy. Uh, and then obviously, you know, core experiences that we feel are, are relevant and will take us to another level. You know, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we were planning the podcast. You know, it's just so hard to get at that character, that culture fit. And, you know, particularly if you've just got a, a little bit amount of time with someone. And, and you know, I'm sure you put people through quite extensive interviews. You've got a very robust HR organization. I know some of your folks over there. Um, but, you know, when you think about maybe your involvement with maybe, you know, a level or two below you where, where they say, you know, this is an important hire. We're bringing in a director of merchandising or, you know, someone that's maybe doing design work. You know, they know your background. And, and you know, you've got maybe 15 or 20 minutes. What, what kind of questions do you ask? How, what, you know, what do you get at? when you try to understand the character and, and particularly the cultural fit of that person and whether or not they will make the grade, you know, assuming their qualifications are there already, right? You, you have to, you have to assume that that's the case that they're going to be spending time with you. But you know what, how, how do you get at that, Dave? Yeah, it's well said. The first thing is you assume that they have the capabilities, right? Otherwise I wouldn't be sitting in front of them. So we'll right. talk quickly <laughs> about that. Uh, but I really try to dig into what their personal interests are, what, you know, what, mm. what motivates them as a person. Um, right. I, you know, I, what I tend to do is lay out my values, uh, or my expectations for leadership based on our values mm. and see how they react. <laughs> Cause sometimes you can tell yeah. right away if they're faking it or not uh, based sure. on their response. Um, and then I'll challenge, have challenging questions on giving an example of, you know, a conflict resolution uh, situation that you had to go through. How did you manage that? And, or how did you manage working through that tough situation? Or how did you influence people to gain the investment that you got to do what you did? Right. More right. probing questions versus validating their skills and trying to get a sense of, you know, who they are as a person. Who they are, yeah. Uh, yeah. More important than anything else. Excellent. 
Well, Dave, we're just about out of time. You've been very uh, gracious and, and we very much thank you for your investment in this. But we always ask one last question of our guests. And, you know, that's kind of what career and life advice would you have to someone who perhaps has their eyes on a corner office and like you work for big companies maybe early on and decided they maybe wanted to get to something, you know, a little bit more manageable and wrap their minds around. You know, what would you advise to somebody maybe, you know, mid 20s, mid 30s that, you know, is looking ahead and, and has those types of aspirations? Well, the first thing I would say is is find your passion. If you haven't found mm. it, spend your time, you know, exploring things that will give you opportunities to really fine tune uh, and understand what makes you tick and what you, and what drives you every day. Once you have that, don't compromise uh, mm. and stick to it because if you're not driven and passionate about what you're doing every day, you're not going to be successful both in work and out of work right. as a result. So, you know, really stay motivated be yourself. Don't, you know, don't do things that are outside of your integrity just to get ahead mm. um, and stay consistent. And if things, you know, and listen, if you're at a company and things aren't going the way that you feel they should be for you, don't be afraid to make a change. Um, yeah. You, know, you only yeah. get one shot at it. And so that's right. Stick to your guns, stick within your integrity, make decisions based on what's best for you and your family. Um, work your ass off. And <laughs> I believe that, you know, success will follow. Wise counsel. Dave Powers, President and CEO of Decker Brands, thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. You bet. Thanks, Brandon. I appreciate the time. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode. 